Well, good morning. Our scripture message for this morning comes from 1 Kings, chapters 8, 54 through 61. Uh, please pull out your Bibles and follow along with me. If you uh, don't have a Bible, just remember that there are those that are placed underneath the pew of the chair in front of you. In verse 54, uh, the Bible says, When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had been kneeling with his hands spread outward towards heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise to the Lord, who has given rest to his people, Israel, as he has promised. Not one word has ever failed the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us, as he has been with our ancestors, and may he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him and walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and the laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to our God day and night. And may he uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may the hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, live by his decrees, and obey his commands at this time. And if you move forward with me uh, to 1 Kings, now chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Many years later in Solomon's reign, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. And he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Amorites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east in Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Amorites. Good morning. As you heard just from our reading now, we're going to be in 1 Kings uh, chapter 11. We're really going to look at that second passage in chapter 11 this morning, and uh, as I was thinking about this passage and what we see as we, we look at Solomon's life from chapter 8 to chapter 11, I was thinking about a uh, very vivid time in my memory that I can remember when Joanna and I were first married. I remember uh, walking through a department store. I don't remember what store it was, but uh, we'd been married a couple of years. We lived in Houston, and I was walking through the store. I was just walking along, and all of a sudden I saw there was a scale in the store. And I went, oh, we don't have a scale, huh? I'll check the scale. So I stepped onto the scale, and I remember being absolutely shocked at what it said. And I stood there looking at it, and I went, that can't be right. And so I moved to the next one, and it was the same thing. It was right. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, how did this happen? How did it get to that number? Right? Like I had been, I was a couple years out of college, and in, in my college life, I probably played basketball 20 hours a week, plus or minus. And as I started to think about what my life now looked like as a working man and married and not playing basketball 20 hours a week, I started to dawn, it started to dawn on me how this happened. Uh, the way I ate had changed pretty differently. The way I exercised had changed a whole lot. Uh, lots of things had started to happen, and it started to dawn on me that over time, it, this was little by little, but this is what happens, right? When we stop exercising and we start 
uh, eating not quite as well and we work long hours and all those things, that's, that's what happened. And, and so I was thinking about this this week because it's really a slow slide. That I, I, we didn't have a scale at the time and I hadn't really thought about it and I wasn't that aware of it. And then all of a sudden there it is in front of you and you go, how did that happen? And so what we're going to talk about and look at this morning is a very similar thing in the life of Solomon. How he goes from what we see, what Jonathan just read for us in chapter 8 of 1 Kings to what we see in chapter 11 of 1 Kings. And what we're going to look at and what we're going to think about this morning is how he went from 8 to 11. And the answer is it went very subtly, very slowly over time is what happened, how he went from one to the other. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you've been with us, you know we're in a series of where we're moving through all of Scripture. We started at the very beginning and uh, the very beginning of January and in Genesis chapter 1. And we've been working our way all the way through. And the way we've been going at it is we're doing really three, I think, 12 week segments on this big overview of Scripture. And so we're right in the middle of the second segment, which really puts us pretty much in the middle of our whole series. We're going to finish this up. Towards the end of the year, we'll have a couple other shorter ones in between when we take a break between the second section and the third section. But what we've been seeing as we go through all the way is there's one whole story that runs all the way through Scripture. That man has turned his back on God and God doesn't give up on his creation, but he pursues us. And he makes promises and and what we call covenants or promises in the Bible. And then he fulfills them and he keeps bringing them to fruition. And he keeps we keep seeing them more and more. And as we get to first Kings, what we're seeing is that God gave this promise way back in Genesis three, that he would send a savior and he would come and he would redeem his creation. And then he he told uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, he would do that. And he gave him some very specific, uh, bigger picture things on how it would happen. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and all those things. And when we get to 1 Kings 11, where we are this morning, really what we've seen happen is God has made a great number of descendants from Abraham. He's established them in a land. And now, finally, we see them become this great nation that God promised. Uh, as you read through Kings, even if you just read uh, the chapter before this in chapter 10, we see this picture of the fullness and how great Israel has become under Solomon. And it talks about all the gold and the silver and the horses, the horses being military might. That's how they measure that. They've accumulated all these things. Even Solomon's wives that you just heard from chapter 11. He had so many wives. That was a great uh, picture of your wealth and your power and all these things. And so you see this picture of how they've become this wonderful, great nation. They're uh, probably the greatest nation on earth at the time. Solomon's got a wonderful uh, palace that he now lives in. More importantly, he's built a temple for God that's beautiful beyond compare, this wonderful, huge temple that, uh, remember David, we saw a couple weeks ago, wanted to build, and God says, no, no, I'm going to let your son do that. Well, he's now done that. Uh, the prayer that we heard there, him, him praying in chapter 8, was at the dedication of the temple. So everything is pr- going pretty well in chapter 8 and 9. Chapter 10, there's people coming from all over the world to hear Solomon's wisdom. He's considered the wisest man in all the world. Everybody comes to hear his judgments and what he thinks and all these things. And so how do you go from that, that picture in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 and chapter 10 to what we see in chapter 11? And the answer is it's a slow slide that that happens. And it's over time, a gradual slide that we start to see as Solomon starts to turn away from God and what happens. And so this morning we're going to look at that idea. Uh, We saw a similar thing, if you were with us 
uh, about three weeks ago with Saul, the first king under the United Kingdom of Israel. Remember, this is a period we're right in the middle of uh, chronologically in Scripture where Israel is brought together under kings. It was first Saul, and then it was David, and now it's Solomon. It's about a 120-year period in there. And we saw Saul fall apart through his arrogance. And he was just very brazen in how arrogant he was. And although we see that a little bit with Solomon, it's not quite as obvious. It's a little different in how we look at it. So this morning, I want to look at it like this. There's a downward spiral that happens with Solomon. And so we're going to look at each step on the way down and how this happens. And we're going to look at it like this. The first step is disobedience. He decides not to follow what God's told him. So the first step is disobedience. The second step down is he begins to have a divided heart. His heart becomes divided between God and God alone and his glory and other things. And then thirdly, all the way down as he gets to the bottom, as he begins to look for meaning elsewhere, he begins to go after other things. And so we see each step and how they build on one to the next to the next. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we do, before we step into those steps and think about how that plays out in Solomon, how that can play out in our own lives. And, and by the way, we're going to finish. The last part is how do we guard against that? Most probably the most important part. How do we not do that? How do we stay away from that? But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll look at these verses in chapter 11 together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the life of Solomon that you recorded for us and what it can teach us today. A man who lived so long ago, but all the things that he was dealing with and the things that that slow slide that are so relevant to us. We pray this morning that... uh, You would show us where in our lives we're on that slide, where we've started to do some of those things that you would pull us out of that. We pray this morning that uh, as we open your word, we just confess that without you, uh, we are hopelessly lost, that we need your spirit here moving freely in this place to open our eyes to see your word and to apply it for us, because without that, we could never do that. This would just be uh, pointless. So we ask that you would come and you would move freely in this place and open our eyes to see the truth of your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we begin, we're going to start with the idea just of disobedience. That's the first step on the way that Solomon goes into this slow slide over time. And the first part we'd say is disobedience. And you see it very clearly in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. Uh, Jonathan mentioned that there's these Bibles that look like this. If you need a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along. We're actually on page 187. So it's easy to find. We can all be on the same. That's what I'm reading from, which is the ESV. So if you want to follow along there, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And so the very first thing that we see here in chapter 11 as we go from this change of Solomon doing so well and everything going great to what we get to in chapter 11 is it just clearly tells us that Solomon has become disobedient to what God's clearly told him. And it's the same issue if you've you've been going through this with us or you know your Bible as you read through it. It's the same issue we see in Joshua. It's the same issue clearly over and over in the book of Judges. We even see it in 1 and 2 Samuel. All the way through, this is the same issue of the people of God who are called to be holy nation, set apart, different than the world around them, and they begin to assimilate. 
They go, oh, that's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And we see that with Solomon. He decides to take wives from the people, the nations, the pagan nations that surround him. And God has clearly told him he's not to do that. And here is uh, we see Israel begin to do that and they start to slide into that. And what we see really in a in verse two there is it says uh, in quotes, if you notice in your Bible, it's in quotes there. It says you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. What, what the author of first Kings is doing and what is telling he's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 17. And Deuteronomy, if you'll remember as we've walked through this, Deuteronomy was a series of sermons given by Moses right before the people of Israel went into the land. How they were to live, what they were to do, what they were not to do, what they were to look like, how they were to be a holy nation set apart for God. And it's the same when we talk about it. We can read this and go, oh, well, that's historical and that's what Israel was supposed to do. But let me remind you when we talk about this, just in general, this big idea. Peter says to us later on in the New Testament that now the church is a holy nation, a royal priesthood who God has called out of the darkness to proclaim the excellencies of his name. And what Peter's saying is we're supposed to be the same way. We're not supposed to look like the rest of the world. We're supposed to look like what God calls us to be and we're to be a light to the world. And so when we talk about disobedience that creeps into Israel and we see it in Solomon's life, it's vitally relevant to us today because we're called to be the same thing as the church today. Just like Israel in the time of Solomon, God had set them up in the center of the world and given them all this great stuff and all these things showed what true worship looked like, how you come to God. So he's done with the church today. He set us up to show what it looks like to worship the true God and come to him in Jesus Christ. And it's the same thing. So we're to be doing the same thing. But what you see in Solomon is you see him take all these wives. It says here he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And you may say that's pretty blatant, obvious uh, rebellion against what God said. But I want you to think about just how that happens. How do you end up with 700 wives? You don't take 700 wives all at once. It's not just I'm going to marry all these. It's a slow slide. Over time, it happens. And now it sounds absurd to us when we say 700 wives and we think about all this and goes with it. But culturally, that's what kings did. As they conquered areas and they entered into treaties, they would take uh, daughters of the places that they just conquered and they would take them in and they'd take them as their wives. And, and it was a political move, partly. Uh, the, the, the country that's underneath, that's uh, been conquered, they would offer their daughters... As wise, thinking, well, if this king takes one of my wives and he, or one of my daughters and he cares for him, that's a good thing for our relationship. Because right? my daughter's over there living in the palace with him. That's a good thing. And so you could see in the culture why that happens. It seems a little weird to us to have all these wives, but part of culturally, that's, that's what it was. And so you see that slow slide into this. But it's not just that. Because in Deuteronomy... Moses, as he's preaching, tells them there's going to come a time when the people are going to want a king. But I want to warn you about some things about what it should look like to have a king. And he says, don't have lots of horses. Don't accumulate lots of military might. He actually says that God tells Moses, you make sure that they don't do that. Don't have lots and lots of gold and money and accumulate great wealth. He tells them not to do that. And it seems kind of weird. Why does God care about having lots of horses or, or doing those things? And part of it is because they're supposed to be different than the world. That's what all the other kings did. And God says, I don't want you to be like all the other kingdoms and all the other kings. I want you to be different. 
You're going to look different than the world around you. But even even the horses thing, I want you to think about that for just a second. What's a few horses? Right? A military needs that. I want you to think about, though, when they came into the land, if you know the story, the very first battle they have, they come in and they take uh, the city of Jericho, the walled city. And God gives them a very specific yet very strange plan on how they do it. They march around the walls seven days, one time each day, and then the last day seven times, and they yell and the walls fall down. How many horses do they use in that battle? Zero. Right? God says, I'm going to do this for you. You put your trust in me and I'll take care of you. You follow me. And so what we see with Solomon is a slow over time going, I need more and more horses. I need greater and greater military might. I'm going to put my faith in what I've got, my stuff and my things. And so over time, his heart begins to be divided and starts to be uh, trusting in these other things. And you see that all the way through. So when we talk about ourselves, we can go, well, does anyone here struggle with accumulating lots of horses? Pro- probably not. That's probably not the issue. I, I, maybe someone is hoarding some horses that I don't know about, but I doubt it. I doubt that's the case, that we're, we have that issue. But when we think about what that represents and what that means, I want us to think, though, about our day and what that looks like. Uh, what about your wealth? Are you hoarding wealth for yourself and in, in hopes of, of making sure you're comfortable for a long, long time. Or maybe for you it's uh, the latest technology, the things that you just have to have. I've got to get these things. Or maybe it's clothes, or, or maybe it's the golf club, or certain shoes, or a tele- or whatever it may be. There's lots of things that we start to kind of put our, our hope in, our, our faith in to a degree, and that those are the things that we count on to make us happy. And we could say, well, is it wrong to buy a new television? No, it's not wrong to buy a new television. It's not. I'm not going to tell you that it is. We're not going to draw a strong legalist line and say you can't buy a new TV because that's wrong. That's that's not what I'm going to tell you. But I want you to think about what that looks like when we start to fall into those things. It's not disobedience to buy a new television. But as a believer, if you've got to have the new television and the new technologies and the new TV and the the new... uh, computer, the new whatever, to the fault of that's where the majority of your resources go. I've got to have this and this and this and this. And then, oh, by the way, if there's some left over, maybe I'll tip God. Maybe I'll give a little bit to the gospel going out to the nations. Maybe. Maybe if I've got some left over. That's where we've crossed the line into disobedience. That's where we've subtly started to slide and replace things in our heart that should be all about God that are now about other things. And that is so, so subtle in our culture because we live in a consumer culture where we're constantly bombarded with you need to have these things and it needs to look like this and you need to have this stuff. And we, we are hit with that all the time. So it becomes very easy to slide into, well, yeah, I do need those things. And we don't often say, oh, I'm going to make all about getting this stuff. But over time, that starts to happen. Maybe this morning you, you hear that and you go, yeah, OK, I, I give faithfully and I seek for the spread of the gospel, that's not really my thing. But then I want to ask just maybe it's not your thing. Maybe that's not your deal. Maybe you don't buy lots and lots of stuff and you haven't bought into that kind of consumer mentality. How's your thought life? Talk about things that are subtle. What does your thought life look like? Are you constantly struggling with lust? Is that where your mind goes? That you're giving over to that and you're letting... No one knows. No one can see it. No one knows but you. Maybe you're not even acting on it, but you're, you're constantly entertaining thoughts in your mind. 
That's pretty subtle because no one knows but you. And that can become such a small thing that starts to take a hold. Or maybe that's not the issue. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe you've been really wronged by a friend and you're holding a grudge. And you're not going to forgive them. They're wrong and I know they're wrong and they know they're wrong and I'm going to hold on to that. And that's festering in your heart. Because that's something that can be very subtle. And over time it takes, it takes a root in your heart and it starts to grow. It's the way sin is oftentimes. It's like a little seed that begins to germinate. And as we hide it and we keep it and we don't let anybody know about it, it starts to grow and it starts to take hold and it causes greater and greater problems. And I think that's what you see in Solomon's life. Oh, what's a few horses? What's taking one more wife for this treaty? What's some gold? We're the greatest country in the world. We can have these things. But over time, they start to accumulate and it starts to slide. So his disobedience becomes greater. And then we move to the second part. And the second part is you, you get a divided heart, right? That root of sin, that seed that takes root, starts to grow up in your heart and it starts to divide. We're to be wholly set apart to the Lord, all about him. Everything's supposed to flow out of a love for God, love God, love others. But when we start to divide our heart with other things, it starts to pull us apart and it gets right in the middle. And that's what you start to see with Solomon. Look at the very end of verse two and then verse three. Just the way it's even written in the ESV, Solomon clung to these in love. He clung to his unbelieving wives from the pagan nations in love. He clung to them. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So what it tells us is Solomon's heart became divided. He clung to them in love. And so what we see here is when we talk about taking God's uh, very practical advice, do not take wives from pagan nations. It's the same thing Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. I want you to think about why that's so important. The most important thing that is to be in our lives is our love for God. Love God and love others. That's first. He's supposed to be what we're all about. When we enter into an intimate marriage relationship with someone who's not a believer and we're knit together and we're so uh, intimately involved and that relationship flourishes. And as Solomon does, he starts to love his wives and he clings to them. But the most important thing in your life is off. You don't see eye to eye on that. That's a recipe for disaster. That's why the scriptures tell us don't do that. That's not the way we were supposed to go about it. And so you see that and it starts to have problems. And so we see that with Solomon as they, the wives begin to take root and they begin to take a part of his heart. It tells us that his heart is divided. In verse 4 it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives had turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. And what it tells us is, is through those relationships and through time, those women took part of, De of Solomon's heart and, it, and divided it. And over time, he had a divided heart to where he was wanting to please them more than he wants to please God. That's what we end up seeing. He's going after these other things to please them. And so it begins to uh, divide his heart. And so I want us to think about just how that happens. Yes, it's subtle. And over time, I want to think about even how it happens for us in the church today. 
And I'd submit to you as I thought about this, part of it is how much time, how we spend our time. What are the voices that are coming to bear on our lives? Right? We're supposed to, uh, Psalm 1, read Psalm 1 with, with my boys the other day, and I was thinking about that, and I was here, I've read it so many times, but then telling it to them, suddenly it was so much more vital as I thought about it. Right? Don't spend your time with scoffers. Don't spend all your time with those that aren't believers. But, but meditate on God's word and let it dwell richly in you. And I think about when we start to have a divided heart in our culture today, what it means is oftentimes we spend so much time with things that don't really matter and very, very little time in God's word. We don't seek godly counsel when we're struggling with something. We don't go and find someone who's really been walking with the Lord for a long time and say, I'm struggling with this. Can you speak into my life on this? See, oftentimes we go to Dr. Phil or to Oprah. Well, Oprah said, well, Oprah's not a believer. Oprah doesn't have God's word dwelling richly in her heart. And I hate to tell you, but most of the time the advice she's going to give you is horrible. It's because she's not dwelling richly in God's word. And so what we do is we let voices that we're never supposed to be coming in and speaking to us and helping us walk and follow God. And we let them have a place that they shouldn't have. And that's part of it. And that seems very subtle. We spend lots and lots of time listening to other things. I want you just to think about this this morning. In a given week, do you spend more time reading the newspaper? Maybe you still read the newspaper or reading online articles or watching television Pick one of those, whichever one, or reading your Bible. Which, which do you spend more time in? I want you just to think about where you go for your source of, of replenishment and, and what you're doing and, and being built up. Which one give, do you have, uh, give more weight to in your life? And it's very subtle things like that. And we start to let other things have influence in our lives. And that's why it's so important. And we need discipleship and we need others speaking into our life. We need to let uh, God's word stand over and above us. See, the hard part a lot of times when we get into idolatry, really, which is what we're talking about when we talk about a divided heart. We're letting something that should God's place, other things take that place. That's what idolatry means. We're letting other things be idols in our lives. A lot of times the hardest part of this is it's so subtle because the things that begin to divide our heart are good things. With Solomon, it's all his wives. That wasn't a good uh, thing that he's got going there with 700 wives. But let's just say it's one wife. You're supposed to love your wife. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty big call. You are to love your wife. But when you slide into letting your wife have the center of your heart over God, that's not a good thing. Even more subtle to that, or for me in the way I think of it, is your children. The moment you hold your child for the first time ever, there's a love there that will never be broken. It doesn't matter what they do. You're always going to love them and you're always going to care for them. And so it's so easy when that's the case for that to become divide your heart. My child becomes what my child's happiness is more important than anything in the world. That's not biblical. We were made to be all about God and his glory. And yes, out of that, we're going to love our children well, and we should. I'm not at all saying we shouldn't, but they cannot become the very center or problems come. Think about why. Right? When your, your child grows up, they're in high school now, and I want to go to this party. Right? And you know there's bad things happening in this party. You don't feel good about it. 
but your child, you're divided in your heart and you want to make them happy, so you go, okay, well, go ahead. I know it's not good. I know it probably won't end well. This is not a good thing for them to be involved in, but I want them to be happy. Right? We start to divide our heart and we let those things happen. 16th birthday, I'm going to give you a brand new car. Right? We will, I, I've thought about that. I've actually, my, my, son is, my oldest son is six years old and I've thought about that. I'll want to give him a new car. I will. I know it already. I know in my heart. I'll want to make him happy and go, here you go. And then the other side goes, that is a horrible idea. Right? There's so many things like that. that we, we, when we're seeking godly counsel and we're looking at it, sometimes it's so hard. When we put God first and we begin, there's times when we have to say no to certain things. We have to hold to God's truth and tell people, well, this is what it says. Right? I think that's where a lot of errors come in the church. A lot of pastors who want to be pastoral, who love their people and care for them, and I don't want to offend them, so we'll just push this to the side. That's a problem. And I want you to think about it, especially perfect example is with your children, because when we start to do that, we're not truly being loving. That's not truly loving. If we want to raise our children to know the Lord and fear in Him and put their trust in Him, that should be more important than upsetting them at one given time or another. I can think of the perfect example in my own life. When I was a sophomore in high school, we moved. And we were going to a new school. We moved to a new town. And I wanted to go to the... My brother and I both. We desperately wanted to go to the public high school in our town. And it had a horrible reputation. It was a very wealthy town. And there was lots of terrible things going on there. And my dad came and he told us... And I remember through tears he said, No, you're going to go to this Christian school that's 40 minutes away that we're going to have to drive back and forth to every day. And that... And as shallow as I was, my reason for wanting to go to the public school was because I wanted to play basketball there. I didn't really care about anything else, but that's what I wanted. And I remember being really upset at him. How dare he? Why would he not let us do this? And it took a while. My first year at that school, I was mad that I had to be there. But you know what my, my dedication to my senior yearbook was? What I wrote to my parents? Thank you for seeing the importance of a Christian education long before I ever did. And so it took a long time. And, and by the way, that's not to say if your kids are going to public school, that's wrong. That's not, that might not be the case. Depending on where you are and what's happening, at that time I think they made the right decision, where we were and what was going on. But maybe that's not the case. I look back on it and see what could have been if I had been in that environment, and I'm very thankful that I wasn't. But that may be different for different people. You seek the Lord and you seek godly counseling, counsel and you do it in fear and trembling and you trust in him in those situations. But in my life, that's what it looked like. And so sometimes it's hard to speak up and tell the truth because those things are so subtle and we don't even recognize that we're making idols out of our children or whatever it may be. And I have to wonder that that's not what happened with Solomon. Because you get to verse 4 and it tells us that his wives turned away his heart and his heart was now divided and it wasn't truly to the Lord. And I know that happened over time. So the third, so that's the second part, the divided heart. But then the third part, the third level down is, is what happens when that takes root and our heart is now divided. How does that play out? And it's never good. And you see here in verses 5 and 6 and 7 what happens with Solomon. And it's a sad, sad story when you read it. When you think of the heights of where Israel was and what God was doing and how he blessed them. And then what you get to in these verses. 
And it says in verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the god, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemeth, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Do you see what happened? His heart becomes divided between his foreign pagan wives and for God. And so he goes after and he says, I'm going to make them happy over God happy. The exact thing we're talking about that can happen so subtly with our children or our spouses or whatever it may be. And we go after these other things instead of following God. And it leads to us looking for meaning in other places. Solomon, who built the temple of God and did all these wonderful things, goes and builds temples to false gods. You see how divided that is. How bad that becomes. Little things take root and then it gets more and more and then they divide our heart and that's where we end up. I wish I couldn't. It it broke my heart to think about it this week as I got to the end of this and was thinking about a clear example of how this happens. And the problem was there were so many. But I thought of a friend of Joanna and I, a couple that we used to be friends with years ago uh, when I was in seminary and Joanna was in residency. And this friend that we spent quite a bit of time with, we were very social with, they were believers, we were friends. And after they moved away, they moved away the last year we were there and then they came back and what we heard was my friend that I had known for many years had been struggling with lust. That's where it started, his thought life. And then it turned into pornography. And then it became an addiction in his life. And then it turned to multiple partners. And then it turned into prostitutes. Multiple, multiple partners as he betrayed the trust of his wife over and over. And we were heartbroken. How can that happen? What in the, when, we, when I heard, I couldn't believe it. I had known him for years and talked to him and us one-on-one and different things and didn't know any of it. And here was this horrible picture of when you give away just a little bit in your thought life. And then it grows and it gets bigger and bigger and then it manifests and your heart becomes divided to the point that you go out and look for meaning and intimacy and all these other things and places that you never should have been. It's the same thing. It's the same downward spiral we see with Solomon. I figured, go to that example and talk about that for just a moment because I want you to think about what's happening. That's what's happening with Solomon. Sexual sins... Yes, there were other reasons he took lots and lots of wives, but women were his downfall. The same thing with David, with Bathsheba. Same thing with his dad. That's what he grew up seeing. Same thing that happens there, and you see that over and over and all the way down. And so you see this awful picture of this disobedience that grows and what it results in. And so we get to the end of that, and I want you to think about, so what's the answer for all this? How do we avoid these things? The heart, as Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things. When we begin to trust our own instincts, our own emotions, our own desires, this is what happens. And so I want you to go back and just look at verse 61 of chapter 8 at Solomon at his height when things were going well. 
Right? If, you're, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on the same page, just on the opposite side there in the top corner. And it says, verse 61, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord your God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. The way that you guard against this is you trust God's word. You trust what it says. You take what God says and, and when your emotions say something different, when your experience says something different, or you think this isn't that bad because this is what everybody else does, you trust God over what everybody else says. That's why it's so important that you're spending time in God's word more than you're spending time listening to Oprah. That's why you let this be the thing that drives your life. That's why it's important to have discipleship and people coming around you. And that's why we say that would be the second part of this, of how do we guard against it? Yes, you trust God's word, but you seek godly counsel of people who can speak into your life and help you recognize and see these things before they ever get there. We need that. And so you seek that counsel and that accountability. That's why we talk so much about getting involved in a small group or getting involved in discipleship, or seeking people out and building those relationships, because we desperately need this. What about, though, if you've already gone down the spiral? You've already given way. Your heart's already divided at certain, some certain spot, and only you can answer that. Maybe you have a divided heart right now, and there's things that you keep on this side that I don't want God to know about which remember from Psalms 139 last week, he already knows about. There's nowhere we can go to get away. He already knows everything about you, but we hide and we seek. So what about that? What about when we've already gone down and we've made mistakes and there's problems that have grown out of it? Well, the first part is this. You confess your sins and you repent, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive you. That's the gospel. You don't have to hide it because of what Jesus did for you. And we say that every week because it's the most important thing we can ever hear. It's what our deceitful, sinful hearts need to hear over and over and over again. That he came and he lived the life. He's the only person ever that was never disobedient. The only person ever who never had a divided heart. The only person ever who didn't seek for meaning in other things. And he lived that perfect life. And then he says, you give me all your mistakes. All the times you've divided your heart. All the times that you've sought after other things. You give them to me and I will take them and I'll do away with them. And I will give you a new heart. I will give you mine. Jesus says, I will give you my righteousness completely and totally for you. And I will make you over. That's the reason we don't have to hide. That's the reason you seek accountability and you want people to look in because we're all saved the same way. Yeah, you seek out people that are ahead of you that God's brought closer and they're maybe a little further along in their sanctification and they're getting it together better, but they know better than anyone else that the only reason they ever got to that part is through God's grace and His alone. So you can tell them. You can let them in. You can tell them what you're struggling with and what you're dealing with and let them help you. So the first part, of if you've gone down that road, is you repent and you seek out wise counsel and you have people speak in. Most of all, you go to the cross and you lay those things at Christ's feet and you let them take it. You know, my friend I told you about when we found out 
all the multiple partners and prostitution and all those horrible things, the way that story ends is he sought out someone and he confessed and he repented and God changed his heart and he went to his wife and he begged for forgiveness and she forgave him because of what Jesus had done in her life and they are still together today. They're raising their family together. God forgave all that happened and renewed and restored that relationship. As bad as it was and as ugly as it was and the consequences that still exist and and will be there and the trust issues and those things that you have to work through, God can do that. And it's a beautiful, wonderful picture of what he can do and how he can do it. So what about the practical side of that? You repent Well, then you go and you ask for people to spend time with you. And you have people hold you accountable. You confess where you're struggling. This is where I'm having a problem. I want you to ask me about it. I want you to pray with me about this thing specifically. I need that help. And we begin to do that together. And you ask. Maybe at the beginning, depending on where you are, it's asking every hour or every day or once a week, or whatever it may be, you go to war with your sin because it's that important. And I want you to think about why we do that. Because of what Christ paid to take your sins, we go to war for those sins because we want to honor and glorify Him. We do not want to trample His blood and what He cost Him, what it cost Him to take it from us. You see how important that is. And then the last part, and I want you to leave here with, with hope and excitement about what God can do and who He is, because I know a lot of that's very weighty and hard to think about and to struggle with. But I want you just to hear these few different verses from God's Word, the promises He has. You repent and you confess and you get accountability and you have people speaking in, and then you believe in His promises. Right? That's, that's what it tells us back here. In, uh, it's in chapter 8, verses 56 Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And what Solomon was rightly saying at that time is God's true to his word and you can trust in it. And so I just want you to hear this and we're going to end here and we'll pray in just a second. But just think with me about what what scripture says when you do these things. Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, the Lord delivers them out of them all. Second Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's Isaiah 41, even to your old age, I am he, and to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I made you, and I will bear you, and I will carry you, and will save. That's Isaiah 46 and Philippians 1. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You trust in who God is and what he can do, and you lay it at his feet. That's the heart of the cross. That's why we have hope despite our sinfulness because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, confess that we're a sinful people. That we struggle with making other things idols 
in our lives at so many times. We just uh, pray this morning that you would root those things out, that you would use us as a body of believers to come alongside one another, to hold each other accountable, to continually speak the grace of your cross to each other over and over that we'd continue to do so until we just trust. We put our faith in your promises. We put our faith in what you can do through us by your Spirit. We pray that you would remove those things. We pray that we would go to war with our sins so that we never end up in that downward spiral, that we don't end up at the end of our lives like Solomon going after all these other things, but that we would seek you every day of our life. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.